When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists And for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you really doing? Let's come on. I'm doing doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Okay. That's almost believable. It's hard to be really good when the government issues an air quality warning for your county, which it just did about 15 minutes ago here for Missoula County. Uh, it still looks like we live on goddamn Tatooine or something out there. The sun is an angry red god in the sky. Uh, the moon is about the same thing. Everybody sounds like they've been smoking three packs a day for the last 20 years. My throat feels a little bit like I've been eating broken glass. Uh, but other than that, you know, I'm doing fine. Doing okay. Well, let's just hope it doesn't interfere with your, your CrossFitting or whatever it is. You guys aren't calling. I know you guys, your place, they cut ties with the CrossFit brand. Right. What do you call it now? You're, you're just, well, you're what? The official name of the gym is Montana Fit, but that just sounds weird to say to me. Mm-hmm. So I honestly don't know uh, what to even call it anymore. Um, so I, I guess if we want to refer to it as CrossFit, that that's okay. Okay. Well, meanwhile, I... After getting, securing your agreement that we are going to become diehard Seattle Kraken fans, mm-hmm. now that we have an NHL team, you know, within a nice, cozy little eight-hour drive of us here in Missoula, Montana, I've been looking deep into their lineup, okay? I'm, I think the next move we're going to have to make, now that the Seattle Kraken actually have a team, is we're going to have to select a guy who's going to okay. be our guy on the Seattle. Yeah. I mean, we could have more than one guy. On the Seattle Kraken. Technically, they're all going to be our guys, I would think, right? But you know what I mean. Yeah, who's... Well, okay. I guess style of play is going to affect my personal choice as to who is the guy. But who has the the craziest name on the Kraken's roster? There are a lot of good hockey names on the Kraken roster. And, you know, Mason Appleton. Okay, I like that. I like that. Also, when I tell you that Mason Appleton, born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, you know... Going to roll up in here as a six foot two hundred ninety three pound center on the Seattle Kraken roster. You know that's a pretty good hockey name. Um, I also though you, you, you got to think about Gavin Bayruther, a uh, defenseman. That's that's a pretty good out, out of Canaan, New Hampshire. Okay, yeah, guy, that sounds right. Guy seems like he just, he just seems like somebody who'd punch you in the face. Are we sure that these are real names, or did we just no, like create a sure. team on like the newest EA Sports? hockey game and these are just like computer ai generated hockey names that would be on our roster i am also ready to get all the way amped about six foot seven defenseman jamie oleksiak i think we got our guy six foot seven jamie oleksiak i assume we nailed it pronunciation wise Mm -hmm. uh where, where are we talking about uh born in toronto ontario canada i like that okay i like that uh, I believe he was previously, uh, or, or like maybe just originally, with the the Dallas Stars. Um, you know, kind of. I'm looking at the stats. Kind of seems like a little bit maybe a work in progress. But uh, I don't know. A six foot seven defenseman who's going to come from Toronto to the to down here to the new team in Seattle and maybe have to rough some people up. I don't know. Yeah, that seems like something we could get into. Uh, when does the season start? I believe the season starts in earnest, usually in like early October, and runs okay. fucking forever. Like they, okay. it's easier to ask what months the NHL is not in season. 
I my assumption is that the Kraken is going to be a pretty hot ticket, mm-hmm. but I'm also going to throw out there that we got them them direct flights from Missoula, Montana, out there to Seattle, Washington. It's possible as diehard Kraken fans, as Krakenators, you and I should should take in a game. We should take in a hockey match at some point. Jump on a flight get over there and see our beloved Kraken in person. Maybe some Comaniacs who live in the area would like to meet us out there and, uh, we, you know, strengthen numbers when we roll up in the Kraken joint. Don't turn off the podcast. We're going to start talking about MMA in a minute. <laughs> you are listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. Of course, this show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or your podcast libraries. If you think, if you think we're having fun right now, though, Check us out over on Patreon, patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I are party rocking over there with three additional podcasts every single week. If you don't get your MMA fix from this show, though, frankly, so far that seems impossible. Uh, you can check us out over on the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday. You can also check out the Friday power hour. And if you're still hungry for more talk, we got the Thursday movie club for the top tier patrons. This week we are watching Monster to kick off Charlize Theron month over there on the movie club. So we are all very excited about that. We got music this week. Who are we going to do the music from this week? Let's go old school. We got music from our guy, the fifth element a music oh, nice. producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out at, on Twitter at the fifth element, facebook.com slash the fifth element or soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. It has been a while. So I will remind you, that is the word the with an A, the fifth element. Yeah, see, it's, it's been so long that for a second there, I, I was wondering if it was the fifth element. Don't worry, I got you. Thank you. Uh, three rounds as usual this week in the Coming Event Podcast. In round number one, TJ Dillashaw is back. Maybe not back enough to have deserved the win over Corey Sandhagen, but still plenty back enough to retake his spot as a top bantamweight contender. And in round number two, it's possible Bellator's biggest fight of the year goes down this weekend. Will you be watching? And in round number three, hold on. Did Stipe Miocic just get lost in one championship's Instagram comments? Because that's weird. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. All right. The first piece of listener mail is a long one. But it's an interesting one, so buckle in, comes in from Jacob Ferrara, who writes, In the lead-up and aftermath of T.J. Dillashaw's win, and then in parentheses he puts question mark, against Corey Sanhagen, I saw lots of drug cheat and steroid user and needle emojis used in reference to T.J. Dillashaw. It made me think about the way we talk about those that have been caught or at a minimum tested positive. Guys like Brian Ortega, Chael Sonnen, Donald Cerrone, Alistair Overeem, and Dan Henderson have all either failed drug tests in the past or, in Henderson's case, took advantage of TRT. Ortega even admitted to taking, knowingly taking an anabolic steroid after testing positive pre-USADA. These are all guys that the MMA community has collectively agreed that we like. Therefore, we don't ever really get shit. They don't really ever get shit for being PEDs users. We will often acknowledge that Chael and Overeem used, but it's treated as a punchline, and we all find it funny. Meanwhile, guys like John Jones, Yoel Romero, Vitor Belfort, and TJ Dillashaw are vilified, and will likely have the drug cheat label stuck to them for the rest of the time. I have a theory that fans don't actually care about PEDs in MMA. What they care about is having ammunition to use against fighter we've all, fighters we've all agreed are bad or assholes, no matter how many times they've been cleared by USADA. Parenthetically, Romero had incredibly reasonable doubt that make their uses questionable at best. Parenthetically, Jones take advantage of a system numerous others were taking advantage of in parentheticals. Belfort or admitted use and have been brutally honest in explaining their reasons for using and made no excuses. Dillashaw, can we all just agree that MMA fans only care about PEDs when fighters MMA Twitter has decided we can't or shouldn't like test positive or am I off base here? My apologies for the length. Please discourse. Uh, This is kind of an interesting email and I think like kind of a decent point here. Like obviously there's a there's a lot of blame the can and does and maybe should be spread around for when people test positive for PEDs in MMA. But it is pretty striking that there are numerous people uh, who we sort of seem to forget and forgive about the uh, the PEDs use, the past PEDs use. And there are other people that it just hangs on them like a shroud. And so far, it kind of seems like TJ Dillashaw is going to be in the latter camp. And of course, we'll talk more about TJ coming up in round number one. But, uh, you know, 
during the height of the TRT area, you and I talked about this a lot. And I remember, uh, you know, talking about Dan Henderson and people would ask, is it a double standard that like people seem so upset at people like Vitor Belfort for using TRT, but nobody ever really talks about it with Hendo. And like, first of all, I guess you could say Henderson never really ran afoul of the rules. As far as we knew, he was using TRT and however you want to think about it now in retrospect, he was using it within the bounds of the rules at that time. Some of these other guys, they still had their, their testosterone levels go off the charts and they, they got popped and et cetera, et cetera. So in the favor of Dan Henderson, you got to say that for him, that he was kind of, he appeared at least from the outside to be using it within the rules. However, I do think that we in the MMA community, and I'm not going to exclude the two of us from that because we are probably as guilty of it as anybody. We do give people that we like or people that seem like decent human beings, perhaps in this sport, a little more rope than we give other people. And of course, that's going to vary from person to person according to who you like and who you don't. But I do think this is an issue. I do think this is a thing that happens a lot in the MMA community. Yeah, I, I think this point is well made here, especially with some of these like specific examples, like the Brian Ortega one, where it was pretty seemed like it was pretty clear cut, and yet other ones where it seemed like it's pretty clear cut, like T.J. Dillashaw, it does feel at least now like people are not going to let him walk away from it that easily. And he also, you know, T.J. Dillashaw spent two years on the shelf, you know, over two years really when you think about how long it's been since he before he actually returned, like that. That's doing the the crime and doing the time right there, and yet still it doesn't earn him that much leeway from fans when it comes like it comes back. It's still going to be an issue. I guess my question would be, what are we saying we should do instead? That we should be either harder on everybody, uh, even if we like them, or that we should take a fuck it who cares attitude about everybody, since sometimes we're only caring when we already dislike the person. Yeah. And that's, that's a good question to ask. Uh, I can only answer specifically for myself. Like at this point, having been around the sport for so long and have, you know, having experienced an evolution, I guess, in how I think about PEDs over the years, uh, especially as I started to read a bit more about PED testing and the worldwide anti-doping culture and stuff like that. Like I'm kind of at this point of the mind to give a guy like TJ Dillashaw a little bit more rope because at least he admitted it. And like the guy served his time and now he's back out there as one of the more scrutinized fighters in the UFC. I got to believe USADA's probably knocking on his door all the damn time to try to make sure that he's not doing anything. Of course, so the system is far from foolproof. People can still be, uh, be using stuff perhaps if they want to, but like a guy like TJ Dillashaw or frankly, a guy like Brian Ortega, who I think is a great example here because he is a guy who, uh, who's well liked in the sport. Uh, you know, the guys who have admitted it and said, hey, man, we made a mistake that this we probably shouldn't have been doing this. And then they served their time and then they came back. Like, I honestly don't know, aside from getting in a time machine and going back and not taking the PEDs to begin with, what you want these guys to do, especially a guy like TJ Dillashaw. He basically said, you know, I use PEDs. I was trying to make flyweight. Like it was a big fight. So I used EPO and then I, he took a two year damn suspension. And now he's back, 35 years old, two-year suspension in the middle of his 30s. Nothing to sneeze at, by the way, for a bantamweight MMA fighter. And so, like, I don't know, unless TJ Dillashaw fucks up again, I don't know how critical I can really be of the guy at this point. I can say he shouldn't have did it. He shouldn't have taken EPO ahead of the uh, uh, the uh, uh, Henry Cejudo fight. And I will and do, but, but other than that, like, I don't know what to do. Like, the guy's back. He's under scrutiny. He served his time. He's winning fights. I, I don't know exactly how to how to put that in perspective or what people want. I do think that an added variable is beyond just do we like them or do we not. And and but I don't disagree with Jacob Ferrara's core point here. I think that he makes a good point. But I do think that there is sometimes unfairly or fairly a perceived difference in like people kind of look at certain people and be like, this guy was nothing without it. And then this other guy, uh, you know, maybe he screwed up here or there. And we don't necessarily make all those distinctions with the best of logic in every single case. But I think like something like with Vitor Belfort, where it's like TRT was a thing. We kind of knew about it by then. We were already sort of suspicious of it. And then he shows up out of nowhere in like his 30s, just completely jacked. And everybody's going, wait a minute. Wait a damn minute, Vitor Belfort, and your resurgent career. 
rocketing yourself toward the title shot while you suddenly look like, you know, I, the Saturday morning cartoon version of your previous self. Like, and I, I mean, now I understand what you're saying about Overeem that, uh, you know, it's kind of treated as a joke. But at the time, it wasn't, especially at the, at the time when Overeem was the Strike Force heavyweight champion who was not defending that belt because that would mean coming back to the United States and competing. And instead, he was over in Japan doing his thing and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger like that. Those were the days of Uberim, and it was not treated entirely as a joke back then. And so I think that sometimes we look at somebody's sort of career arc and we're asking, did this guy need this to become the fighter that he became? And yeah. and some people, and, and again, I don't know if we are always making like drawing those lines as well as we think we are. But I think that that's the same thing that holds true in baseball. Like you can hear about somebody, like somebody ran afoul of Major League Baseball's you know drug testing policy and they get a suspension and. I mean, it's even more so in the NFL. You get like a four-game suspension or something, and people go, "Well, we'll see you when you're back." We'll we'll talk about what the, what this is going to do to the depth chart, but nobody is really out there talking about what it's going to do to your legacy. And then in baseball, we had some of that, but then you also have some people where they're going, "Well, look at Barry Bonds. Like he was this guy, and then he transformed into this guy, at least like visibly." And that's what people will latch on to. And again, I don't say that that's always done with 100% fairness, but I do think that that is another little wrinkle when MMA fans determine when they care about PEDs and when they don't. Next question this week comes to us from Dustin Pettit over on Patreon. He writes, Sam Alvey has lost six, six, (laughs) parenthetically the number six, in a row in the UFC and is still fighting on the card this Saturday. Wait, the main card. So Sam Alvey now fighting back down at middleweight. He's going to fight Roman Kopolov on the main card of this upcoming UFC on ESPN event that is headlined by Uriah Hall versus Sean Strickland that goes down on Saturday. Ben, the last time that the 35-year-old Sam Alvey won a fight was a split decision victory over Jean Volante, June the 1st, 2018. So a lot of water under the bridge since then for Sam Alvey. He has lost five fights. There is a draw yeah, in there correct. as Dustin well. Correct, Dustin put it on a fact there. There was a draw, so he has not lost all those. He just hasn't won for six straight fights. Yeah, and even before that, the guy was only three and two, going back all the way to his loss to Talos Latis in 2017. So it's not like the numbers were eye-popping there either. Uh, but you know what? The UFC is in a very pragmatic state of its business at this point. And so for a guy like Sam Alvey, who's going to probably give you an exciting fight and may or may not win or lose, what are you making that face for? Is he going to give you an exciting fight? Because this is going to be the point Sam I was going to... Th- throws them bungalows, man. That's what he does. What Sam Alvey does is stands there, waits for you to throw them bungalows, and then he's going to fire back. And if you don't give him the kind of fight that allows him to throw them bungalows back in return, the bungalows will not get thrown. He he has been in some fights that are painful to watch. I mean, I think when, when when you let him, when you play into his stuff, he's going to stand there back against the fence kind of waiting for you to, to to engage and then try to get you in a counter and like land one big punch and he has been in some some good fights um like his last one that one where he lost to uh Julian Marquez and I believe that was the one where uh maybe is that where Julian Marquez asked out Miley Cyrus afterwards and it went horribly wrong in the end that sounds right that sounds um, right maybe that was a different one actually maybe maybe we went with a completely different thing after that one but that was a fight of the night award winner. You look at the rest of them. There's a whole lot of fights there where, you know, we, we weren't exactly racking up the performance bonuses. And so that's why I was going to say that it's a little unusual because normally we would say something like this. Hey, we would invoke the Lorenzo Fertitta. We like guys that war principle. And I don't know if it entirely applies to Sam Alvey. And so I think it's a fair question. Like, what is it the UFC sees about Sam Alvey? They're like, you know what? We're going to give this guy tons of rope. Is it that he is just like contractually really easy to work with? Maybe not making a ton of money. I don't know what it is. Or they just like like having him around. They feel like he brings a different vibe. He does do that. I, I don't know. I don't totally know what it is. But it, it's, it is a fair point to wonder about at this, at this juncture in his career. 
It is a fair point to wonder about, but as I was going to say before you started mugging for the camera over there, uh, he's, I'm going to say exciting. Like he's a strike first knockout friendly fighter, whether it happens to him or whether he does it to somebody else. And I like, that's, that's basically what the UFC is into at this point. That's why we saw, uh, this weekend, the, the co-main event between how Leon Pavia and Kyler Phillips, right? Like who those two guys are only their mothers and their coaches know, but they're going to go out there and they're going to give you an exciting fight. And that's why they're the co-main event. That's the business the UFC is in it now. So I think it's thinking pragmatically about Sam Alvey. He's going to go out there and give you a stand-up fight, which for better or for worse is what they like. And I would wager at this point on the heels of all these losses and a draw, he's probably not costing you very much money, which might at this point in the UFC be the biggest determining factor. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes, there was a lot of chatter on the Twitter this weekend about UFC judges scorecards. Daniel Cormier and Dominic Cruz both lamented at different times that they don't know how judges score fights. Do you think it would benefit the broadcast if they took an MMA judging class so they can give insightful analysis of who won each round? Or would this take away from their buddy cop movie style commentary? Uh, I mean, Daniel Cormier and Dominic Cruz had themselves a night on Saturday. Like, frankly, I enjoyed it. I like what those guys bring to the table on commentary. I love it when uh, Daniel Cormier starts calling Dominic Cruz cruisy, which he was doing a bunch on this night. And this obviously is a, was a fight card where there was a bunch of, or a handful of questionable decisions, or at least a handful of decisions that either could have gone either way or drew the ire of fans on social media. And like, I don't know if it would help all that much for broadcasters to, to, take a class to know what the criteria are. I mean, if you're going to be on a, the UFC broadcast, should you know how the judges are going to score the fight? Probably. Yeah. But the real question is, are the judges going to score the fight according to that criteria? Or are they going to do it more on fucking, uh, witchcraft and, uh, you know, gut feeling than anything else? Is there going to be some alchemy involved in how we get these decisions? Because sometimes I watch the fights and I don't know if the judges are actually using the letter of the law to score these things. Yeah, okay, that's true. But okay, first of all, full disclosure, I watched the last few fights of this fight card uh, in a bar with Danny Downs. So uh, didn't hear the commentary on all of them. I mean, I went back and I had to watch the main event again because the stream that the bar was using was not necessarily the best. I blame ESPN Plus for that one. But um, I do think that it, like, I understand what you're saying that. The judges might not be going by what's in the letter of the rules. And I think that we're going to end up talking about it a lot with the TJ Dillashaw, Corey Sandhagen fight. Because I feel like that was one where one guy was fighting to his understanding of how the judges score it. And and he was kind of right. Yeah. And yet, that's not what they're supposed to be doing. And I would say we don't even need to make them like take a class. We just need to make them all sit down and watch Sean Sheehan's very clear and helpful explainer video. About it. It's pinned on his goddamn Twitter profile. You can't miss it. You go to Sean Sheehan's uh, Twitter page and it's right there at the top. And I mean, it's only like I'm trying to look it up so I can see exactly how long it is. But it's like 20 something minutes long. It's really not that long. But it does a really good job, you know, at Sean Sheehan BA right there explained MMA judging criteria. And it does a really good job, I think, of dispelling some of these misconceptions about when you hear words like, okay, effective striking, grappling, octagon control. And it's like, if you don't know better, you hear that list, it sounds like, well, that's just the list and we're we're counting them all equally. And that's not what the judging criteria say. And when you see somebody doing stuff like spending a lot of time where he's holding somebody in one position and it looks like, and we we have accepted this too, that we go, well, hey, maybe that shouldn't be what, win you, what wins you a fight, but that, you know, the way these judges think, that's how they see that guy on top and they assume that guy's winning. And so then... We are playing into it. Like, we are kind of accepting of it where we're going like, hey, that's how the judges operate. And so, therefore, that's how fighters are going to fight to win. And so, therefore, that's just the way of the world. That's just the way it is. And maybe if the commentators were more clear on some of the actual language of the rules and the scoring criteria, they could be like, look, the way it's supposed to work is this. And if they score that instead of scoring it the way that it's written that they're supposed to, that is some bullshit and it's wrong. Like maybe that would put more pressure on the judges to score it the way it's written. 
the way it's supposed to be scored. I mean, the same thing, though, it, it still drives me crazy sometimes that we can have these guys, kind of the same rotating crew of people working the same UFC broadcast over and over again, and still get little stuff wrong about like, oh, well, you know, he got poked in the eye, he's got five minutes. And it's like, no, he doesn't, man. And like, that's been established for a long time. Like, how are we still not clear on that stuff when like those are the people who need to be the like kind of the most clear other than the actual officials of re- responsible for enforcing the rules? Those people need to be clear so that they can communicate it to other people so that we can all understand it and what's happening. Like, that's a big part of the job that they're supposed to be doing. And and it's not like, I mean, I know sometimes the MMA rules and scoring criteria can seem a little like Byzantine and everything, but it's not that complicated. It's not impossible to know this stuff. I, I think that it would just, like, it seems like kind of a minimum to ask of everybody that we just know the damn rules, Yeah, you know? Well, I mean, it seems like kind of a vicious circle, to be honest with you, because like, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want us to give too much away here about round number one, but like, if I was a coach, and it was like, how do you want your fighter to fight out there? I honestly want my fighter to fight like TJ Dillashaw fought against Corey Sandhagen because he did all of the stuff that we are led to believe wins fights. And then he did win. Uh, even though it's like by the letter of the law, maybe Corey Sandhagen should have won. But Dillashaw was doing all the stuff that we as a culture, as a, as a sporting subculture, have learned to actually win the fight. And TJ Dillashaw did all that stuff. And if, if, if the judges are going to score the fight that way, then guys are going to prepare that way. And that's how they're going to fight. And so it's kind of like this vicious circle of like, nobody is, nobody is actually scoring according to what the criteria are, man. And like, and maybe some people are, and some people aren't, and that just makes it worse. And it's, it's crazy. It's crazy that it works that way. But if I were an MMA coach, I would be like, yeah, man, go out there and fight like DJ Dillshaw. Do do that. Cause that will win you the fight. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's a fair point, but I also think that if more people knew the sports scoring criteria and actually talked about it, and if it got brought up on the broadcast that, hey, they judges will sometimes act like it works this way, but it's supposed to really work this way, I think that it would not take that long to increase the pressure on them to actually score it the way it's written. I, like, I think that, that that could be done. and it. But it's like, we're all a little too accepting of it. We're all a little too accepting of the idea that, like, okay, you do these things, even if it's not supposed to work that way to where that ends around in your favor, it does. And we we just go, well, that's just the way it is, man, these damn judges. And, and we're... I think sometimes it's it's a reflection of us trying so hard to just understand what the judges are thinking. And again, maybe stuff like open scoring could also help with this. If you were like finding out as you go, like here's what the judges thought of what we all just saw there. But I, I think that if we are too accepting of saying like, okay, we want the scoring criteria to be this. We want the sport to work this way. But the judges, they're just kind of making it up as they go. They've decided a completely different thing and we must all play to that. Like, no, man, they need to play to the rules like that. That doesn't seem like too much to ask. Next question this week comes to us from Lars Lindholm, who writes, is there a brain that needs studying more upon their death than Darren Elkins? First of all, it's a little macabre uh, about the, referencing the death of Darren Elkins. But oh, Darren he's not Elkins, immortal. He's going to die someday. Chad. You need to know, make your man. peace with that. Is he not? Is he not immortal after what we saw this weekend where Darren Elkins and Derek Minner went out there Looking like two cousins from the part of the family no one likes to talk about fighting during the family reunion. <laughs> Derek Minner did like all of this crazy shit to try to beat Darren Elkins. And then, weirdly enough, exactly as the UFC broadcast team was talking about through that entire fight, like Darren Elkins did that thing he does where he just endures until the other guy gets tired and then flipped him over and pounded him on his face until he got the stoppage. I just... My question in response to Lars Lindholm here is, what if we study that brain and maybe we find out some things we weren't prepared to know? That's true. Yeah. I mean, I it's it is really remarkable though because I I wrote about it a little bit after the fight that like Darren Elkins is like thirty seven, and in you know lighter weight classes we as we've talked about. You don't see guys sticking around and, and continuing to be good this long. And like you see a lot of the way some of these fights go, and you're like, he shouldn't be winning these, man. And yet, like you you kind of know what you're going to get to a certain extent with a lot of these fights. He's going to go in there. He's going to get split open pretty early. He's going to pour a whole lot of blood on the mat. And then he might just end up finding a way to win anyway. Yeah. That's a, like... 
if you call me up, to, if I'm a fighter and my manager calls me up and says, hey, they want you and uh, Darren Elkins in October and, and, you know, Pittsburgh or wherever, I'd be like, I don't know, man. Is there anybody else? Because I feel like maybe skill-wise, you think you match up well against them. Athletically, you think you match up well. But you see what keeps happening. And I, I don't know. I don't know. Like... I remember Chuck Kloster once asking people these questions about like trying to determine if you see the world as a rational place or an irrational one. And he's like, who do you least want to play cards against? Like the, the MIT math whiz who built his own like computer algorithm about playing poker or uh, like a, a slow talking, seemingly dimwitted guy named Tex who just keeps getting lucky. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to understand that guy. Like you're like, there's something that that guy is doing that I'm not totally able of like conceiving and, and, and understanding maybe you want no part of that maybe it's easier to understand somebody who just looks like they're fucking super good and you can be like alright like skill wise I just have to deal with it Darren Elkins something like extra scary about the black box that is Darren Elkins yeah no I agree uh, and considering our previous conversation about Sam Alvey we should know Darren Elkins had lost four in a row uh, 2018 to th- 2020 but now his comeback has two stoppage victories under his belt so at 37 years old uh he's still out there man he's still doing it and very much in his post-fight interview kind of made it sound that way just like i'm at the point of my career where just want to fight again in october man whoever you got for an exciting matchup let's do it i don't want to get that call like you nope. said i don't want to be the guy on the other end of the line who's like hey man we got a we got a we got a heater for you how you feel about darren elkins in october yeah i mean like how do I feel about fighting like a, a giant wad of bubble gum? Like, oh, what, what am I going to do to it? Wait in there, punch and kick it. And the next thing you know, I'm all stuck and wrapped up. And I go, you know what? This is a bad idea. That's how I feel about it. That is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one well ben neither of us gave tj dillashaw all that much chance to defeat Corey Sandhagen when we talked about this fight on Friday during the power hour over on the Patreon page. We thought Sandhagen's length, his fighting style, his more recent elite experience would probably lead to a victory here over TJ Dillashaw. And when all was said and done in the main event of the UFC on ESPN 27 on Saturday night, I think a lot of people thought Corey Sandhagen should have earned the decision victory. But I think we also got to give a hell of a lot of credit to TJ Dillashaw here, man, who in a fight where he came in as the underdog and you and I both talked on Friday, we kind of thought he was going to get stopped by Corey Sandhagen. Uh, He, if nothing else, made this a very, very close fight and a fight where, you know, maybe close to 50% of the people thought that he deserved to get the nod in the decision. And if nothing else, man, comes in here against the guy who is essentially the de facto number one contender as soon as Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yawn settle their differences over the 135-pound title. Dillashaw emerges with the win and looked pretty darn good doing it, I have to say, considering this is a man in his mid-30s who was coming in off a two-year break for the PED suspension that we talked about at the top of the show. What was your reaction upon watching this? Just knowing that you and I had talked on Friday about how we both liked Sandhagen here. Sandhagen was not the prohibitive betting favorite, but a notable betting favorite. And then to see TJ Dillashaw come in, kind of do all this Dillashaw-y stuff and walk out with the victory. Yeah, I mean, it was a smart game plan by TJ Dillashaw, even if it's also one that required him to put some toughness on display because he had to take some shots from Corey Sandhagen. I'd also say, though, that like Corey Sanhagen, he he fought like, I'm going to knock this guy out eventually. Like, it's only a matter of time, right? Like, one of these big sort of, like, a spinning back fist or, or a jumping knee, 
as it has continued to do for me, those things will set up a finish. And it's just a matter of whether it's in the first round or the fifth round. Like, eventually I'm going to get him. And he felt like he was just not at all really concerned with how these might be ended up on the scorecards. Like, like I don't want to say a lack of urgency, because when he got to get out in space and do his stuff, he was really effective at it. But then he was also giving TJ Dillashaw these openings to do his stuff, where it's like, you know, where you're throwing a spinning back fist when you know what the guy wants to do is to latch onto your back. Or, you know, you're, you're trying like these spinning kicks, jumping knees when you know what the guy's really hoping for is to close the distance and maybe put you on the mat and, and get some control over you, slow down the fight a little bit. And it just seemed like there's a little bit of a lack of an adjustment from Corey Sandhagen once it was clear that that was going to be TJ Dillashaw's strategy. So you had to know you're close coming into some of those later rounds and yet kind of still doing the same thing and giving TJ Dillashaw the opportunities he wants to at least, like, in the judges' eyes, appear to be winning the fight. Yeah, and TJ Dillashaw, there was some talk that perhaps he suffered a knee injury in the first round. Then he gets a goddamn cleaver wound over his eye uh, pretty early in the fight that he has to fight through. So he did, in fact, show some toughness there. And like I said during the opening, man, regardless of what you think about the, the, the decision and how it actually turned out, TJ Dillashaw did all of this necessary stuff that he had to do to win this fight. He controlled the range. He closed the distance well. He upset... In many respects, Corey Sanhagen's rhythm, he pushed him up against the fence. Uh, he landed some good shots in the striking. Uh, you know, he he got on top. He controlled the back. He just did a bunch of really good stuff throughout 25 minutes of this thing and ended up getting the nod. And so I think you got to uh, give TJ Dillashaw a lot of credit here. One thing that I saw him do where maybe he was not doing this on purpose, but it seemed to me like maybe he was, especially in the early rounds. It seemed like TJ Dillashaw was using a high five at the beginning of the rounds to close the distance, <laughs> which I thought was was kind of interesting. Like he he would sprint out to the middle of the cage and then instead of like holding his glove out to do a glove touch, he would like put his hand up for a high five as if to say, come closer. Yeah, that's closer, right. Please. I mean, the, if, you, if you wait out of here for the glove touch, the guy can still keep you at that range, which is an advantage. But if you put a high five and you put it up like directly over your own head. Yeah. And so I mean, had to come close to him to high five him. And then TJ Dilsha was practically where he needed to be already. I was like, veteran move. That's some shit he thought up at home. He's sitting around for two years cooling his heels. Yeah, about, or, you know what I'm going to do? A fucking tricky ass high five. I, maybe he was like, all right, how about this? I'll try to start each round with a hug and just take it directly into a clinch. He's like, no, he'll see that one coming. Ah, yeah. I know. The high five. The high that, five. That will be my key. Because, I mean, whenever you saw them get out here into open space in the, the middle-ish of the cage, Corey Sandhagen was doing work. Like yeah. TJ Dillashaw just could not really fuck with him there. And he he was doing a great job of just like using a range of weapons to keep TJ Dillashaw where he wanted him and landing good punches there, landing good strikes and like but he I would just think that at some point you have to see what this guy is doing and where he wants to be, what kind of a fight he wants it to be. I also though do wonder do you think Corey Sanhagen did see that, but is he just telling himself, look, the judges know that just holding on to a guy's back and like wrapping your hands around his waist and, and pushing him up against the fence, they know that that's not winning a fight, so I'm not worried about it. Like, Is it possible that Corey Sandhagen had too much faith in the judging uh, standard as it is written? I suppose it's possible, but if you go back and listen to his corner advice between, I think, the fourth and fifth round, they were not talking like a corner who thought that they were winning that fight. They were talking, at, at the very least, like a corner who knew that it was close. And they were telling him, hey, man, do not let him get you up against the fence. We need the movement. We need you uh, hurting him every time he close, tries to close that distance. It wasn't like uh, one of those corner activity periods where they're like, great work, champ. Keep it going. They were they were in, not in panic mode, but they were concerned. I think in those later rounds, I think it was, they knew it was close, and so uh, I don't know. It's just it, it just turned into a fight where T.J. Dillashaw, I think, got to do more of his stuff to fall back on a, a phrase we use a lot on the show than Corey Sandhagen did, and he emerged with the victory. Although it was a, it was another one of those weird fights where the guy who looked way more beat up. Then his opponent got the nod, and I saw some people, some some maybe casual UFC video uh, viewers on Twitter talking about how 
Uh, all you had to do was look at the two guys to know who who deserved to win. But uh, here you have it, TJ Dillashaw. Do you think TJ Dillashaw now? Well, first of all, let me say this. Uh, given how rematch happy we've been over the last several years, talk about a fight where you actually probably could make a compelling argument that they should do it again. It's this one, man. Not a, and like I wouldn't argue with it because it's. A, I thought this was a hell of a fight to watch all the way through too. Uh, so you know, considering that I, I don't even know what's going on with the health of the champion, and that Aljamain Sterling almost certainly has to fight Peter Yan when he comes back. If word trickled out we were going to do this thing again, I wouldn't complain. But I don't know if that's in the cards. Yeah, well, I mean, doesn't it seem like a lot of it's going to just depend timing wise what the bantamweight title picture looks like? Because yeah. you know, Peter Yan, Aljamain Sterling, they do it again. If the winner comes out of that relatively unscathed and ready to fight again within a reasonable time frame, it seems like what the UFC would like to do there is just say, TJ Dillashaw won that, he's back, he's the former champ, we're putting him right back in there. It's if somebody comes out of that with the belt and they they need a lengthy time off, that's when things could get interesting. Because I don't know how long Dillashaw really feels he could sit around after this. And I mean, like you said, like this one... It showed you enough to see, like, okay, TJ, he's not done. He's not washed up. He still can compete with these guys. He's a smart fighter, an experienced fighter. still has some skills that he can depend on. Uh, but it didn't exactly make you go, that's still the best bantamweight in the world, goddammit. And he's the uncrowned champ and unless until somebody goes out there and beats him at 135 pounds. You didn't come out of it feeling that way. No, I came out of it feeling like he just definitely deserves to be in the conversation around who will fight for the title on a more or less immediate basis. But you're right. Like, and at 35 years old, who knows like how long he can keep that train rolling. But I mean, I'm, I'm a hundred percent more interested now than I was before we had the fight. Like I'm now interested to see how far TJ Dillashaw can go, whether or not he could indeed get that title back uh, and how long he manages to keep the train on the tracks, which headed into this thing was not the conversation I thought we would be having this Monday. So, how do you feel about effort. how do you feel about him referring to himself as daddy? Not great. Does it make Not you great. feel uncomfortable? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit uncomfortable. Okay. It should. That's, that's why I asked. If you felt right. comfortable with it, I'd be worried. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me before things get too weird, and then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? So, listeners of the Power Hour will know that I tried something something a little crazy with my $20 I never wanted to see again this week. Uh, my success in the parlay led me to really, I don't know, maybe I believed too much in my own system. But I had Miranda Maverick, I had Derek Minner over Darren Elkins, and I had Corey Sandhagen over TJ Dillashaw. Now... I'm going to sit here right now and just say it. Miranda Maverick got straight up screwed by those judges. She deserved to win that fight over Macy Barber. You will not convince me otherwise. And then Darren Elkins went out there, just did Darren Elkins shit. I I guess I got myself to blame for that one. And then Corey Sandhagen loses a decision that I thought he deserved to win. Are you fucking kidding me? Is this my fault? Did I Did I do this to these people, Chad? By putting them in the sun. by putting them in my parlay when I was so sure I had a system, did I doom all three of these fighters? And if so, do I owe them an apology? Well, we should just be real clear that you and I combined to go 0-5 on our bets over the weekend as part of our $20 We Never Want to See Again segment. And neither of us correctly picked a fight. Because I had in my parlay Jordan Williams over Mickey Call. Uh, Miranda Maverick over Macy Barber and Derek Minner over Darren Elkins. So uh, bad night at the office for the co-main event podcast betting department all the way around. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Those those judges are to blame for at least some of it, though. I, w- I mean, I will not take full responsibility for this one. There and I said it. I opened up the MMA junkies. Okay. As of Monday morning, this morning. And I saw a headline that I would like to read to you now. Here's what it says. Okay. Manager Mac 100 interested in Blueface versus Takashi 69. 
reacts to fo- post-fight brawl at BKFC 19. What the fuck? <laughs> Have I completely lost the thread, dude? Am I too old to be here now? Because I don't understand a single word of what that means, except for apparently there was a brawl at BKFC. Manager Whack 100. Mm-hmm. Interested in Blueface versus Takashi 69. See, I what? understand some of those words. Just kind of like not in this order. That's what I don't quite know what to do with. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Jed, don't look now, but Bellator has what looks like maybe one of the best MMA fights of the month. Definitely what looks on paper like the most meaningful and best MMA fight of the weekend. Coming up this Saturday, Bellator 263, we're going to see the final of this featherweight World Grand Prix reigning champion. Pitbull Ferrer, Patricio Patricio Pitbull, not to be confused with Patricky Pitbull. He's going to go out there. He's been putting his belt on the line all through this this tournament. He's going to face 17-0 AJ McKee. And for one thing, we got to give Bellator credit for continuing to do these Grand Prix tournaments, as we've talked about before, leaning into a strategy where it seems like, okay, the UFC doesn't do tournaments. We'll start doing a bunch of tournaments. And they seem to be going pretty well. This one, you, you got through the like a kind of a the best case scenario of your entire tournament, and in a timely fashion, where you get the the dominant champion and Pitbull taking on the, the the new hotness coming up the ranks and AJ McKee, and that's how you basically would have scripted it out if you could, yeah. and you end up with it, and they're putting it on here. What's your hype level right now? Pretty high. Like not only does Bellator. Uh, continue to stick with this tournament format but here we are on the cusp of them pulling this damn thing off as you mentioned as well as you could have written it out to have aj mckee uh and patricio pitbull here in the finals where whoever wins this thing bellator uh will have a promotable uh featherweight champion on their hands and a guy that i think that they can make the case is a bunch is among the best fighters in the world at that weight and are you sitting around right now, several days removed from this thing, partially wondering what weird shit is going to happen? Because doesn't, doesn't it seem like we would get, Bellator would get in this position and they would have this tournament final that's going to be the one of the most anticipated fights of the year, and then some weird shit would happen. That's, that's, there's part of me, the superstitious part of me is sitting here, and I wonder how Scotty Cox is taking the week. Maybe cautiously optimistic, but also just taking it one day at a time because I I just feel like some weird shit could happen. You know what? I'm not even going to engage with that line of reasoning because I am a new convert to the power of positive thinking. And uh, I'm, I'm just I'm not I'm not talking clouds on a sunny day. You know what we have here? What looks like is going to be an awesome fight. I believe it's going to go forward as scheduled with an exciting uh, contest and a decisive victor with no controversy whatsoever. I will repeat that mantra every day between now and Saturday if I have to. And I'm not going to let you and your your MMA superstitions bring me down. It's going to take a lot of positive self-talk to get us to this to the cage on Saturday night. Here's I mean, my question. No, go go ahead. What, what do you got? You would have thought that... When you made a, a featherweight Grand Prix, the same line of reasoning of like, hey, you know how these things go, best laid plans in MMA, like it's going to end up being, uh, you know, a reserve fighter against TBD in the finals and it's all going to be bullshit. And yet, look, look where we got to. You got like the best kind of scenario that you could hope for. It happened, yeah. it happened pretty well so far. No reason to believe we can't just go through with it and all have ourselves a good time. I love the confidence, man. 
I hope you're right. I hope we get to this thing. I hope that it is as hotly anticipated as we believe it's going to be. And I hope that it comes off without a hitch. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think we're going too far out on a limb here to say that if you, if you've only got one MMA card in you coming up this weekend, July the 31st on Saturday, uh, you probably want to watch Bellator. This yeah. Weekend. I think they got the, I think they got the better show. I think they got the better show here. Well, I mean, you compare it with what the UFC is offering you with the Saturday night's UFC fight night, uh, which is a really, this is a, the uh, core, like prime example of the UFC's JSF strategy. Just some fights. Yeah. That's what you're dealing with on Saturday. I mean, Uriah Hall versus Sean Strickland as the headliner. I mean, that's a that's an interesting matchup. I, both those guys are good fighters. Uriah Hall has put together a good streak. Sean Strickland is better than I think a lot of people realize. You know, decent fight and everything. But it also feels like we're having some fights and one of them has to be last. And that's the one that will be called the main event just by default. Sure, yeah. fine. Bellator, meanwhile, is like, we've been building to this one thing. And it all comes to a satisfying close here on Saturday night. If you just compare, like, who is offering you the better MMA on Saturday night, it has to be Bellator. The question I was going to ask you is, if you are Scotty Cokes, who do you rather come out the victor here? Would you rather have the 26-year-old phenom, the undefeated 17-0 AJ McKee be your featherweight champion and tournament champion, or would you rather still have Patricio Pitbull the 34-year-old, 32-4 and four overall, a guy who can lay claim to being one of the best 145-pound fighters in the world. Who, to you, from a promotional standpoint, is the more advantageous winner here, potentially, for Bellator? Definitely it's McKee. I think if you're Bellator, you feel like, well, we've seen what Pitbull as the dominant featherweight champ can do for us, and not, which is not to say that it did nothing for you. And like you said, he does. he's one of those fighters that comes along for Bellator every once in a while where people start to go, you know what? That guy might be the best in the world at that weight class right now, regardless of promotion. And if you're Bellator, stuff like that means a lot to you. You can really work with that. But if McKee, who is undefeated, rolls in there and beats that guy, he absorbs that power. You know, Assuming that it is like a decisive victory one way or another, that we don't leave with any big questions or controversy, he will then take over that ability to say, hey, for all we know, that guy might be the best. Plus, undefeated, he, he he talks a good game, knows how to present and promote himself, and is willing to do so, has this good story of like writing himself a check for a million dollars kind of thing, and then he goes in here in this tournament. I think that you feel like we've gone about as far as we go with, with Pitbull. We saw what we get with him as champion, and it didn't exactly set the entire MMA world on fire. But if McKee comes in here, absorbs some of that power, and he becomes the guy now, then that's something that maybe pushes you to a little greater heights. Yeah, and AJ McKee, as you said, an interesting guy, the son of Antonio McKee, uh, a pretty good MMA fighter in his own right during his day. AJ McKee flew through this damn tournament, three stoppages, and route to the finals here. So I agree with you. You get the, you get the victory from that guy. I think you have, uh, you have something you can work with there, in that. Um, but again, like I think either way, if you get Pitbull or you get McKee, and your featherweight tournament concludes as scheduled, with the two guys that had to be continue, considered the one and two seeds here in the finals, you pulled off something kind of special. Uh, if you're Bellator, and you know, we don't give Bellator a lot of credit for that, frankly. Like Bellator is just kind of around all the time if you got the showtime app or you got showtime on your tv maybe you watch it every now and then but uh, i think they deserve some credit here for uh putting on a spectacle putting putting on a a, like a high degree of difficulty tournament and pulling it off that's pretty cool hopefully uh hopefully nothing super weird happens you son of a bitch headed into saturday night just hopefully it's all everything goes off it's gonna be great gonna be perfect All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Round number three. Ben, we are two weeks away now from UFC 265, which will emanate from the Toyota Center down there in Houston, Texas, improbably headlined by a heavyweight 
interim title fight between Derek Lewis and Cyril Gaon. It's obviously been the subject of a lot of controversy in the last several weeks. As we get closer and closer to this event, one of the people who seems like perhaps he is feeling it and may not be that happy is the former champion Stipe Miocic, who showed up in, I believe, the Instagram comments of one championship over the week where one posted this picture of uh, Chatri Sichitong sitting at his desk or sitting at a desk. It's one of those uh, Donald Trump-style desks where yeah. there's nothing on it. Mm-hmm. Well, no, there's Except, a piece of paper and a fountain yeah, pen. There's a, there's a piece of paper with a pen. Uh, Chatri is staring right at the camera. He's got this sort of pensive look on his face. If you want to see the picture, you can go over to uh, Bloody Elbow and see Milan Ordonez's story on this subject. And it basically says, who should I sign? And then you can put you can put your people in the comments here as, as to who you want one championship to sign. One of the people that shows up in the comments, Stipe Miocic. He posts four chin-scratching, thoughtful guy emojis. And then a little bit later on, he, he replies to a user to say, I shouldn't have to wait for a winner. I have the most heavyweight title defenses of all time. We're one and one, but DC got instant rematches and trilogies against me. Question mark. It just seems like your guy, Stipe Miocic, is out here feeling a little bit forgotten, feeling a little bit left behind, feeling a little bit disrespected by the UFC. And you know what? In retrospect, I kind of can't blame the guy. Because yeah. not only were we not talking about him as a potential foe for Francis Ngannou after, they, after Ngannou beat him in the second fight, but then we went in and we did this interim title thing and we didn't even consider Stipe or Stipe is not involved here. So like, man, if you are Miocic and you are looking at this thing, I understand if your feelers are a little bit hurt at this point. Yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, I guess I have to admit that Stipe makes a pretty good point here. I was one of the people who came out of that second fight between Stipe and Francis Ngannou being like, I don't feel like I need to see this trilogy completed, at least right now, just because it felt like the second one was so clear and decisive that Francis Ngannou had gotten so much better at the same time, while Stipe seems to be, you know, finally feeling the the age maybe in the years. But when he lays out his point like this, I I can't argue with the guy. Like he he, we've also heard, you know. Other rumblings over the years about his dissatisfaction with the UFC, about them threatening to strip him of the title. You know, he had that that time once where he defended the belt and then didn't want Dana White to put it on him. Uh, and so it seems like maybe he has not been super happy with the UFC for a while. Maybe that the UFC was always thinking, hey, when we get a chance to move on from the steep as heavyweight champ era, we will gladly do it. Uh, I I don't I couldn't blame the guy. I don't know if one championship is the place. Yeah, you want to go? I understand that maybe we might be reading too much into the uh, the thinking guy emoji. Like I would say, especially that emoji when applied different to different contexts can mean different things. This one, I think the thinking emoji guy is best summed up as, hmm, like yeah. what if? But then you go over to one championship. Who's Stipe gonna gonna fight? You know, it's it's Stipe versus Rug Rug or nothing. And I, I don't. I'm not saying that wouldn't be a good time, but it's a limited time. I, obviously, there are other probably like more realistic options for a Stipe as, as a heavyweight continuing on if he's that unhappy with the UFC. But I also couldn't blame him for looking around at what you're doing where you're like, okay, we wanted to make some kind of heavyweight bullshit title fight, throw an interim belt out there, whatever. And the guy's name didn't even come up. And so then if I'm Stipe, I'm reading it as like, okay, they have decided that I'm the past and they're moving on and thinking about other ideas for the future. What's he supposed to do if he doesn't want to go home and he still wants to be at the party? Yeah, it's weird. It is like, as you mentioned, the weirdest thing about this is to, to hit up one championship. Like that seems like the most unlikely, strangest possible place for Miocic to land. Uh, they do have the pretty new heavyweight champion over there, Aran Bilar. Uh They have Brandon Vera, I have to believe, probably still under contract. But it just seems like if if you were going to leave the Bellator or some other uh, promotion that has a little bit more of a footprint here in America, I know one has recently done its its 
broadcasts on TNT and that kind of stuff, but like it would be a surprising place to say the least for Stipe Miocic to land. Like I don't even know. I would be surprised to Stipe, see Stipe go anywhere, but maybe that's just because I'm so used to seeing him in the, in the UFC. But it seemed like if you wanted to get business done, you would you would head over to Bellator. Now, all that said, like I don't have any idea what Stipe Miocic's contract situation is. I don't know where he's at with the UFC. I don't know if he's just blowing off steam. I don't know if he's just trolling us here. But it does he he does seem a little bit uh, disgruntled, a little bit like he's not sure what to do. And if you just look around at the at the UFC rankings, like I'm not totally even sure if it's clear what to do with it, with that guy. Like he's still technically the number one overall ranked contender behind Francis Ngannou. Then you got Derek Lewis and Cyril Gaon. And then behind those guys, you got guys like Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov and Jarzino Rosenstreak and people like that. So like, I don't know, man. It, not that it's necessarily anybody's fault, but it it's it's kind of seems, at least for the time being, like Miocic is, is out of moves in some ways. Yeah, and it is... I, I can understand him being especially frustrated if him, like he's looking around going, I, according to the record books, am the most dominant UFC heavyweight champion in history. And still, it acts like they wish I'd just disappear. That yeah. that would frustrate the hell out of anybody, I think. Yeah. All right, well, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I, I did want to... Uh, spend a moment talking about the co-main event over here where uh, Howley and Pavia emerged with the majority decision over Kyler Phillips in the co-main event on Saturday night at the UFC on ESPN 27 because these dudes squeezed a whole lot of living into their 15 minutes together. I believe they ended up collecting fight of the night. They did. So they got $50,000 bonuses uh, to, to go along with their trouble. But on a night where you could say it was a big night for comebacks. It was a big night for uh, odd judges' decisions. It was also kind of a big night for the bantamweight division. We had a few outstanding bantamweight fights on this card, and this was one of them in the co-main event. These two guys, relative unknowns, guys who are still trying to climb the ladder, go out there and like show you not only what that division is capable of, but also just sort of like the depth of talent in the UFC, that you got these two guys who both uh, like – have an exciting fight with a lot of back and forth action and you know a a lot of pretty high level MMA stuff happening on both sides and then uh, you know you ultimately get the win for for Pavia here but I'm just saying like we kind of gave them shit for being the co-main event last week and then they came out and they had a pretty awesome fight I'm just saying just saying yeah you know how you know you got you you kind of got fucked up though is if if you're Pavia and after the first round, like you don't even get up on the stool, they bring you the stool between rounds and you're just like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a chill here on the, on the canvas leaned up against the cage. I'm, I'm actually okay. No, that's just a real, that's a winner's posture. I think yeah. you're just like, I'm, I'm so confident. I don't even need the stool. Just you know, going to pop a squat right here. Yeah. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week I'm just saying, did you see your dudes Hector Lombard and Tyrone Woodley getting into it at the BKFC event? I saw the reports of it. Well, there's a video of it where they're having themselves a face-to-face showdown. Hector Lombard is wearing a, a shirt that says Cuba on it, a backwards hat, and a fanny pack. So That seems right. He was getting to do all his stuff. And... He is confronting Tyron Woodley over, in his words, trying to fuck his side chick years ago. And then he's going to later get on social media and tell the whole story. So right there, I'm just saying, we're all kind of like maybe telling on ourselves a little bit too much there. But I guess mainly I'm just saying, you know, a lot of people were like, look, Tyron Woodley, he's not going to seriously out there jeopardize his potential big money Jake Paul boxing match by getting into it with Hector Lombard at a BKFC event. But I am just saying, I think I just, I want all fighters to know if you attend a BKFC event as a fan, an observer, you know, just like a, a treasured guest, be advised because there's a, Already, there seems to be a higher than normal rate of non-combatants being punched in the face. 
at some of these BKFC events. It's kind of like, I remember once going uh, to one of our local bars here, Chad, in Missoula, that is no longer around. You remember the Bucks Club. And once I was there with a couple friends of ours, and some, some trouble popped off, and later a guy explained why he had thrown a like almost full mug of beer at some other dude. And he was like, well, like he was, he was trying to talk to my girl. And I remember one of our friends remarking, well, in fairness, your girl was at the Bucks Club, where we all know anything can happen. That's what BKFC is, man. It's kind of the Bucks Club of the combat sports world. If you show up there, somebody might just punch you in the face for no reason. You might find yourself in the middle of some kind of feud. It, it, it's Thunderdome at BKFC, man. Like you, you, if you show up there, just know what you're walking into. I'm just saying. Are are you trying to say like maybe don't bring your kids mm-hmm. to an event called Bare Knuckle Fighting Championships? I'm just saying maybe have a buddy out in the parking lot who keeps the car running. Okay, you know maybe don't wear your finest your your your, your finest clothing that you don't you can't stand to have something spilled on. You're at a BKFC event, bro. There's all kinds of fluids and liquids flying around. One thing I will say. At least this story between Hector Lombard and Tyron Woodley is one where I, un- I understand all the words. <laughs> I know what this one is about. This one, this one is, I got I got a handle on this one. It's not blue face and Takashi 6ix9ine and somebody choosing to have another man and his manager as his manager named Wack 100. So just saying. I like how from what I see, like from what it appears here, it, this is a, one of those rare disputes where no one really disagrees on the core facts <laughs> of what we're angry at each other over. It's yeah. He's saying, like, remember when you tried to fuck my side chick? Remember? I remember, said Woodley stoically, according to the Bloody <laughs> Elbow Report. Right? That's fucking wrong, continued Lombard. No, that's yeah. fucking wrong. I mean, it's just, I at least like that we can, uh, we can agree on a set of facts. On that note, that's going to wrap it up. <laughs> here for the co-main event podcast remember we will be over at the patreon page patreon.com slash co-main event all week with more content more mma goodness so if you liked this show check us out over there as for right now though we are done we are through we are out i guess i also don't totally understand the logic that makes you go hey is that is that hector lombard's other girlfriend over there well i I could probably go chat her up and just see if she's interested. He, he would, wouldn't take that personally. He would, he would probably be fine. I remember. The tired woman stoically. Stoically. <laughs> you know what? It's an app description here. 